Hi everybody and welcome to HubCP's Live Lounge podcast. So this is a big part of HubCP and HubCP in a nutshell is all about inspiring entrepreneurs and the way we do that is by celebrating the rebels, the rebels of the world who dare to dream big, people who have ambition and desire to take that massive leap of faith to set up incredible businesses and achieve unbelievable things. So the Live Lounge podcast brings those people together and what we like to do is talk to those very interesting people and see exactly what makes them tick. So today it's brilliant to be joined by Juliet Barrett, who is the co-founder of healthy snacking brand Grenade, which is a company that has featured in the Fast Track 100, the really prestigious list of fastest growing companies for over six years now. So Juliet is going to be sharing her tips and techniques for how you can create a fast growing, awesome brand. Enjoy the podcast. There you are, Juliet. Lovely, lovely, lovely bookshelf at the back there, by the way. Well, I just have to apologise because all I've seen is like people on the, you know, the news reports and like all the politicians in front of their bookshelves that have very sort of strategically placed books, like very intellectual books. Mine are all complete trash. I think I've got one called Effort. Um, I've got lots of chitlet where basically boy meets girl, fall in love, have a row, split up, get back together, happy ending. And that's about it, really. So apologies. <laughs> right. So. Yeah, we have got uh, we've got 55 minutes together, and just to just to let you know, I'm going to be asking a couple of questions, and what we want to do is to enable the audience to be able to ask some questions as we're going along. So I'll start with uh, one or two questions, and then we'll start hand over to Steve, and then Steve will bring in the questions from the audience. So what was really cool about talking to you beforehand, and this always this is why I love talking to entrepreneurs like yourself. You were talking about playing tennis, and I said, "Are you any good?" And you looked me in the in the <laughs> And you said, John, I don't like to lose. And for me, that captures what makes really successful entrepreneurs, you know, create amazing businesses. Now, you created Grenade right <laughs> at the heart of the session. Tell us about how you started a business during the worst time to start a business and, and really how you created this amazing entity. OK, can I just do a bit of name dropping and a little sort of scenario about tennis first? Okay. I went to, as part of like the, you know, we've been really lucky to be involved in like the Virgin Unite network um, via the Virgin Fast Track 100. And we were lucky enough to have the opportunity to go to NECA for like a disrupting for good sort of conference. So we went there and on the way we had to stop in like Puerto Rico, I think it was for the, for the transit. We had a few days in a hotel and I booked in some tennis lessons. And I said to the tennis coach, there's always like a tennis tournament when you go to NECA. I said, I want to beat Branson. What are the tactics that I need to use? So it was none of this fair game stuff. And like the, the coach said, he's old, make him bend down. So we like practice for hours, like all these really low shots. But I was close, but he still beat me. So apologies for that. But no, I mean, we launched Grenade, which was a sports nutrition business when we launched back in 2009, 2010, obviously in the heart of the recession. Um, but, you know, when we launched, it was it was one of those things where if we either launched now, or we didn't. So it didn't matter that there was a recession. We had a great business. Um, we launched in the UK 2010 with one product, which was thermodetonator, a weight loss product. Um, and we'd had a background in sports nutrition. We worked really hard on the brand. We know what sold, what didn't sell, what people liked. We knew we wanted a very distinctive brand. So we invested heavily um, at the beginning in a tool to make the, sh uh, the grenade shaped container, because wherever you were in the world, you would know what that product, that brand was called by the look and feel of it. So sports nutrition was where we started. We launched especially sports stores in the UK, GNC, Holland and Barrett stores. Um, products sort of diversified away from the coarse or thermodetonated product into bars. And we realized after seeing trends from the US that you know, people were wanting more protein on the go. They wanted convenient snacks. They were getting more sort of invested in what they looked like. Health and fitness, you know, was becoming really, really popular. And actually, I think the recession helped us with that because, again, the one thing that you can't control as an entrepreneur is timing. Um, and I think you do need an element of luck and that sort of wind of, you know, the right wind behind you. And in times of recession, people necessarily haven't got the money to go out. And especially yeah. at the moment, you can't go out. So the one thing that they were doing when we launched was investing in what they looked like. And actually, if you think about gym memberships, like 35, 40 quid for a sort of spit and sawdust gym, it's relatively cheap. And people were going there every day, you know, training, looking good, made themselves feel better. Um, and actually, it was quite a good way to spend to spend your time. So we had that sort of happening at the, at the moment. So the timing was right. 
Um, but what we also wanted to do is to make sure that we launched a product that not only ticked the boxes with regard to having the protein content and was a credible sports nutrition product, but tasted like a proper confectionery product. So we never did anything half-assed at Grenade. It was always, you know, we had to be really happy with what we were doing. We sort of compromised from 100% to like maybe 97, 98% happy. Um, but every product that we launched was a good product, great macros, macros. We all use them ourselves. We were very genuine and we still are a very genuine brand. Um, and, and that's really why I think Grenade was so successful, because we had a relationship with consumers. They trusted us. We bought out great products. We spent lots on advertising, on marketing. We built a team of ambassadors that talked about the products for us. Um, and I think that's what got us to where we are. Um, but John, I stepped away from Grenade day to day in January 2018. Um, so obviously with what's been going on there in the last sort of 12, 15 months, and I'm not the best person to talk to, but now I work with lots of sort of SMEs, um, either yeah. in sort of non-exec director roles or sort of chairperson roles, helping them grow. So it's a really, really interesting time for the sort of challenge brands at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Julia, if, if I think about myself, right, over the past few days, weeks, especially okay since we went into lockdown if you plotted my mood yeah it's like a roller coaster it's just mm. it's a, now are you somebody because i'm really i really want to tap into your sort of your mentality here are you somebody that always keeps it high in terms of you're always positive you're always can do we can do this do you ever falter is it talk us through your your, your thinking i've got every day i mean it, I mean, and again, when you're running your business, you have days where everything goes really well and you're euphoric, but you have days where everything is, oh, it's the end of the world, you know, how I can't do this anymore. I remember lying on the office in Grenade once going, oh, I can't believe it because someone had said, do you sell in the UK? And I was thinking, we've been trading for about four years. Um, and I obviously haven't done a very good job if people don't know we're a UK brand. But no, the one thing about me is I'm really honest and I think honest with myself. And, you know, I have really bad days and I know that when I wake up in the morning, I walk down the stairs and I'm like, I can't do this again today. It's like Groundhog Day. And it's yeah. almost like, well, what do, what am I going to do today? You know, I'm going to sit in front of my computer. I'm going to have a few phone calls. I can't see my family. I can't see my friends. You know, I can talk to them, but it's not the same. And now I have really, really low days. And Sunday night when Bojo was doing his talk, I was like, oh, I can't do this for another four weeks or whatever it was. But I think everyone has those. And it's just about being honest with yourself. And to be honest with you, I know social media is great because it obviously keeps everyone together. But I also think it's really damaging because you see all these people on there that look like they're dealing with this really, really well. You know, I'm learning this new skill. I can speak Mandarin fluently now. And, you know, I've knitted 15 million blankets for, you know, for children and all this. And you just think, really? Um, but I'm sure a lot of it's just bullshit and they're putting that on there to make themselves feel better. But I just think it's about being honest with yourself. If you're having a bad day, everyone is. So do what yeah. you want to do. If you want to watch TV in your pyjamas all day, do it. It's fine. Now, I must Not admit, every when day. It first, <laughs> when it first started, it was, you know, everyone, you, you're so right. Everyone's talking about, and there's the thought of this, I've, I've plotted out this brand new business. I mean, it really did feel like there was pressure to become superhuman all of a sudden. Yeah. That's I was so great when I chatted with you. It was literally a few weeks and you're just like, look, just chill. If you want to, if you want to have, have a jump, just relax. And I think that's really, really cool insight for people. Now, I don't want to hog this to you yet because because uh, I will if I don't keep a check on myself. So uh, I'm now going to pass to Steve, who's going to start taking some of the questions from uh, our awesome audience. And um, I'll keep on coming in now and then. So, Steve. What have we got? Okay, so the questions are flying in. Um, we have a question here from Paul. He said, you talk about knowing what people wanted from the off. How did you know? The question. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of it is to do with gut instinct um, and knowing your consumer. And I think the most successful businesses are the ones where people have started them because they're genuinely passionate about what they do. I think you can always tell a business that's been started by a founder that just wants to make money versus a business that's been started by a founder that has a genuine passion or interest in that particular area. So we had a background in sports nutrition. We used to supply lots of gyms in Birmingham and, you know, various sort of football 
clubs and, and sports teams with supplements. So we always had an idea of what sold and what didn't sell. So we knew that when it came to weight loss, which was where we started, that people didn't know what products were called. So they were very scientific. They were called like Xenadrin, Zedricot, Hydroxycut, and people forgot what that product was called. They couldn't remember. So we learned very early on that people wanted a brand that was distinctive that they could remember. And we also found out that they didn't like taking a lot of capsules. So a lot of these products were like 12 uh, tablets a day. And we were thinking people don't want to take that. So we made sure that ours was like a one or a two day um, dose, um, capsule a day dose. So it's like learning from experience, really. And we didn't get it right on the offset. You know, we had to refine it. We had to make it slightly different formulas for different countries. So it's all about learning and listening to advice and feedback. Yeah. Do, you, do you subscribe to the whole uh ethos of fail fast Julia is that is that how you sum sum it up sometimes to, to to operate yeah definitely I mean I think people are scared of failure I'm not scared of failure I'm scared of not changing as a result of it so and also I think people don't like to admit that they failed I think that's one of the biggest sort of skills that you can have if you you've, you know you're honest with yourself and you say do you know what I've given it a go that's not right I need to try something else Okay, and then cool. um, I know it sounds a bit cheesy, but, you know, our mantra or my mantra was always, you know, I'd rather be a has been than there never was. So if you don't give it a go, then you'll never find out. Like it. That's really cool. Although I might um, not be saying that when my friend dyes my hair and it's orange, I might be like, I should never have tried that one. <laughs> if it does, send me a picky, won't you? That was that would no. be cool. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, back to you. You said we've got loads of questions. Let's have the next one. Yeah, yeah, we do. So um, this one's from Paul. He said, you have so much MPD, how do you measure success and manage churn? Um, Paul, to be honest with you, I mean, Paul, I don't know what Paul's business is. Is it a food business or? I'm not sure, but if he uh, lets us know, we can add that. Okay. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, at Grenade, we don't actually have that much MPD. So we have lots of, we have flavours of bars that are coming out for example, but you know, with the first carb killer bar, we went through 27 variants of it and it wasn't right. So it was only on the 28th that we realized that yes, that's the product. So there are a lot of companies out there that just bring out products for the sake of bringing out products. And you know, sports nutrition was sort of notorious for that. And what you find is that only maybe 10% of the products actually sell and the rest are just there. And I think now, because there are so many brands and consumers are getting sort of bombarded with marketing images, I think that can actually be quite detrimental to a brand because it can confuse the consumers. I'd rather have five products that we know work than 500 products that we're not happy with. Okay. And talk, but and talk, actually, sorry, John, just to say, I think there is a little bit on that that, you know, for some of the big retailers in the, in the food companies, they want to see you having more than one product because there's no point them just putting one product from you on the shelf because it gets lost. So they like to see you having like two or three in the range. Yeah. And Julia, you know, you mentioned the products there and, and marketing. Something that I always, always um, found very, very cool when I was looking about what you guys were doing, especially in the early days, the marketing sometimes was outrageous. I mean, involved tanks going into city yeah. centres. Yeah. Would your advice be now, based on the fact that there is inherent pressures around spending money, to go for it? What's, what, what are your thoughts around that marketing aspect now? Because you guys nailed it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the times were different now. And, you know, this is the new normal. I think now there is a sensitivity that we need to consider when we do any activity. So it might look a bit flippant if you did a marketing campaign with, I don't know, whatever you were selling outdoor clothing was like, sod this, we're going out. You know, that would look a bit sort of flippant. But I do think that people are looking for good news. Um, and they're looking for something that's other than the news at the moment. So I think really strong branded marketing campaigns where it's relevant to people. Like I used to, again, just shouting at the TV when, you know, the Asda's, the big supermarkets were advertising like all this like outdoor picnic stuff and people were going out. And I thought that's really, really insensitive doing like a TV campaign where you've got people going out and enjoying themselves. But now they've actually changed them. So it's all like back garden stuff and it's all, you know, been tailored to, to the sort of situation that we're in. So I do think that a lot of companies will stop spending. And I think that's actually dangerous. 
I think that you need to push forward. You need to make sure that whatever you're marketing, you know what you're spending. You've got eyes on what the ROI is going to be. You don't think there's going to be this massive sales push. You need to manage expectations. And um, because I think otherwise you're going to be bitterly disappointed. But, you know, this is the new normal. So if it was just going to be locked down for a couple of months and then everything back to normal, then that's different. But now we need to move forward in these times. And what's really jumping out at me in what, in, in what you just said there is people are looking for things that are going to give them inspiration, enthusiasm, make them feel happy. So yeah. are you saying marketing really should be guided down towards how you can up, you know, raise people's moods? And yeah, definitely. And also relevant. So, for example, I work with a vegan chocolate brand that's done a phenomenal job of keeping spirits up of not only the staff, but of their consumers. And I think what we're doing now is it's almost like, you know, tailoring it to, you know, staying in watching Netflix, barbecues in the garden. All the recipes are very much about the ingredients that you might have in your cupboard. So it's just being a sensitive about people's needs and it's all about sharing so you know send your friend a parcel show them that you're thinking of them um so it's those sort of messages that, that people are using in their marketing now yeah cool i'd like to talk to you in a while about uh, different platforms because uh, i remember we've spoken about that before instagram facebook mm. and everything yeah. but before i do steve back to you um we do get a response back from paul he does say that he's in the um tuck in foods uh, which is uh, food to go business. So I don't know if that yeah. helps you with your NFP um, question. Um, yeah. And right, I mean, so we. Food, sorry. No, please go ahead. I was just going to say, food to go at the moment is quite tough because obviously yeah. it's based on people nipping into a store to pick something up for their lunch on the way to work. And I know some of the big retailers have actually stopped like promotions and sort of activity in the food to go sector because they're obviously focusing on like the sort of the more like the staples. But still, I'd encourage, you know, businesses that sort of are young entrepreneurial to really push forward and make people give them a reason to buy your product. Because what we're finding and we've done some sort of research via a digital agency that I'm working with is that people are actually stopping spending a little bit now at the moment because the realisation that this is the new normal is starting to kick in. So when it comes to foods and Paul probably would have realised this is that March was a boom because everyone was stockpiling. April was a bit rubbish because everyone still had a lot of stocks and May starting to normalise a little bit. Right. Cool. We do have um, a fresh question. I like this one. This is from Steve. He said, so would you say to any entrepreneurs right now, if you believe in the idea and your business model, you should launch even in these dire times? It, it's so, I mean, I can only speak from my experience. And for me, it would be yes, because, you know, I guess it's like having kids. Is there ever a right time? I mean, obviously not for me because I've never had any, but um, I just don't think you can you can't plan the time you could wait six months but we're still going to be in this situation um i just think it's a be about being realistic and making sure that you you manage your marketing messages you're sensitive and actually at the moment there's a, and this sounds like we're taking advantage of the situation but there's a whole pool of really really talented people that have been furloughed potentially until the end of october that are allowed to work but not for their company so, you know, you've got a whole pool of talent there, whether it be web designers, whether it be, I don't know, um, digital agencies, graphic designers, you know, that can actually still work and might want like a month contract or, you know, work for six weeks. And I think that's a really, really useful pool of, of labor, of, of talent for entrepreneurial businesses that might not be able to afford someone full time, but could really do with it now. So, for example... I'll just give you a, an example. Um, at one of the companies I work for, we employed a head of operations. She was meant to start at the beginning of April. Unfortunately, we can't employ her because the manufacturing facilities are shut. I do some other work for a, a, a drinks company and they were talking about, you know, they've got a brewery that they that they work in, that they own. And they were saying that they need some processes, some like structure put into that, about like stock control. And I said, well, actually, I know a really good operations lady that's been furloughed. She's not working. Why don't you talk to her to see if you can work together for six weeks so she can put some of these processes in place. And then she can start at this new company where she was meant to work. And it's a win-win situation. She's over the moon and both companies are over the moon. So straight away, that's what you mean by opportunity. You know, there's some yeah, awesome right now. Yeah, and again, you know, you've got kids from university that are at home 
their exams are going to be finished in sort of three, four weeks time. They're going to be bored. So, you know, can you tap into those guys to, you know, look at your social media for you? Is there anything that you can work like as an intern basis? Can they help do some market research for you? You know, there's lots of talent out there that probably aren't working as much as they want to at the moment. Yeah. So, um, Julia, I'll go back to Steve in a second, but you've just touched upon their social media. Mm -hmm. You have LinkedIn. You have Facebook, you have Instagram, there's now TikTok. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of other stuff out there. Having have built, you been on TikTok, John? Have you been on TikTok? I haven't, but you know what? I'm, I'm thinking a TikTok debut is needed. I've just got to, okay. I've got to dance. Is that how you do it? You've got to... I think that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> so let's do, one let's, 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 do a, let's do a duo. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, train of thought. Yes, back to social media. So you clearly, you obviously smashed it in terms of getting your brand out there. Can you just give us some, some thoughts around LinkedIn versus Facebook versus Instagram? Yep. I mean, I'm old, so obviously Facebook is the platform that I sort of grew up with. And actually now Facebook is probably for my generation and maybe a little bit outdated. So we use that in, you know, alongside Instagram and, and LinkedIn, for example. LinkedIn, we've always found is very good for sharing more business news and comment pieces. So for example, with one of the brands I work for, mobile phone accessories, you know, if we've got a new supplier or we've got a new piece of technology, then then we'll talk about that on, on LinkedIn. And I think it's also really useful for obviously building the brand so that when you recruit people, they look at LinkedIn profiles and whatever else. The biggest growth for us, growth growth for us at grenade was instagram so when we launched back in 2010 it was really really early on in social media days um instagram wasn't a huge platform then but by the time we got to 2015 and we were launching the bars women love chocolate we have really nice photos on there and that was really what changed the dynamics of grenade from a predominantly male brand to a sort of 60 40 female focused brand it was one the chocolate bars and two the use of instagram um, and I think what brands are doing really well now is that Instagram used to be used for just like, you know, this is a product like Kim Kardashian holding a tub of protein or whatever and getting paid like a million pounds to do it. But consumers are really, really savvy now. They don't like being sold to. Obviously, you can't advertise like you used to be able to advertise without saying it's a promoted post. So it's about that genuine content. And like user generated content is so important because, you know, the one thing that we found with the food brands is that people relate and buy off other people. So it was all about building the influencer base, credible people that actually use the product to talk about your product and really be the sort of voice of your brands out there. So the content that we generate from the company itself is really quite limited. The majority of it now is user generated content. Right. And so imagery is really important. then. So yeah, it is. is we take from this get that get that imagery looking fantastic yeah but i don't necessarily think it's just about looking fantastic because again you know there's this bit of a stigma attached to social media that's for like perfect people and right. consumers don't want to feel that they're not good enough to use a product so the one thing that we always did was use genuine athletes that genuinely love the product that train really hard that look good but they weren't models and that's right. really really important because you know let's say for a vegan chocolate bar you don't want some stick thin model girl looking absolutely perfect where you're sat at home in your tracksuit bottoms thinking i feel really guilty for eating a bar of chocolate it's got to be realistic and that's really important Wow, that is some fantastic insights there from Juliet Barrett. And we'll look forward to talking to Juliet again shortly. Now, before we go on, I just want to give you the opportunity to go and check out everything that is happening in the world of HubCP. So to do that, if you want to go to www.cooperparry.com forward slash hub dash CP, and there you'll get an opportunity to see former entrepreneurs that we've gone interviewed and also upcoming events. So a great opportunity to really see what's been happening and what is going to be happening in the weeks and months ahead. Julia, thinking of and talking of great leaders like, like, like Richard Branson and really focusing on your style of leadership, something that I've always really enjoyed about talking to you, getting to know you, is that you, you're very honest, you're very real, you just say how it is. Have you always subscribed to that, that type of leadership where just being very to the point 
or is it something that has developed with more confidence as you got more successful? It'd be just to get a really good feeling of, of your leadership style. Yeah, I mean, I've always been really honest um, because I think that your staff deserve that. And actually, I think in sort of troubled times like this, I think honesty is going to get you through it. So, you know, for example, you need to be honest with your staff about the pressures, about the sales, about what you're trying to do to increase those sales. You've got to be honest with your suppliers as well. So suppliers want to work with you. So if you're struggling to pay a bill and you're on 30 days, you know, could they work with you and extend it to 45 or 60 days? So I think that honesty is, is key. Um, I do think you have to be quite tactful. So, you know, there's a difference between being brutally honest and almost rude and upsetting people. You do need to be a bit tactful and respect your staff and make sure that you're not just saying, well, that's crap. It's like, well, you know, do you think you can improve on it? And just obviously working with them because they are your family and they're your biggest asset. That's interesting. Oh, yeah, but I'm, blunt. I'm really blunt. You know, I'm awfully blunt. You know, to the point that my accountant, this was years ago, and I shouldn't really tell you this, he came around to the house and he had a picture on his phone. I said, why have you got a picture of the horse's arse on your phone? And he said, oh, that's my daughter. And like from the angle that it was, I thought it was a horse's arse. And of course, I just came out with it and said it. It's just, and that's the sort of person that I am, where really I should have think, well, no, he's never going to have that picture on his phone. So maybe don't say anything. How did you just... He's my accountant though, so that's good. Just out of interest, how did you backtrack from that? I mean, what's your comeback when someone says no, that? I think it was like, oh, yeah, it was the angle. But like I said, he's still the accountant, so it's fine. <laughs> Steve, next question. And thanks, Ryan, for your early question. That was really Steve, next question. Yeah, we got a, a great question. Um, how do you implement cultural change as a leader during a tough time for business? Um, I don't actually think you can change the culture. I think that cultural fit is the most important thing in a business. And like we always said that when we employ people, um, you need to make sure that if it, you know, you can spot like a nine or a 10 with the skill set easily, um, but you can't change someone's culture. So if they're not on brand, if they don't get the brand, if they don't get, you know, how you work and what you want to achieve, then it's very, very difficult to change that. And again, that's where honesty comes into play. So I think you need to be really honest with your staff about what you're trying to achieve. And then that should sort of keep them on board. But, you know, we've always said that if you hire the wrong person, that can have a really, really negative effect on the culture of the business. And if that was the case, then you really need to sort of let that person go really quickly for them to find a role where it's more suited. And especially in sort of entrepreneurial business, a lot of people come in saying, yeah, yeah, you know, I want to work in an SME when they come from a bit corporate. And when it comes to like rolling up your sleeves and like sort of thinking outside the box and maybe working a bit longer and not having an hour at lunch, some of them just can't cope with that. But, you know, that one wrong person with the wrong culture can have a really sort of negative effect. And I see it in the businesses that I'm working with now, you know, they've built really, really strong teams. And with the, you know, the founders that are in place, the MDs, they're constantly working with their team to motivate them. So they have like the daily calls, you know, they have um, uh, meditation sessions and yoga sessions that they book in, you know, they order pizza for them on a Friday night and get it sent to their houses. So it's all those sorts of things that keep the staff happy and actually don't cost you much. It's just, you know, a little bit of money and a little bit of time to organize and make such a huge difference. And, you know, if you keep your staff on side like that, they'll bend over backwards for you, especially at times like this. On the, on the subject of, of your staff and your team, Julia, do you mm -hmm. feel that you, I mean, the hardest thing is if you get, and if you get the wrong person, I mean, mm -hmm. that's really damaging for your organization. Yeah. Have you always been good at being able to just sift through it and, 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 and get that person out or, or is that something that you've learned with experience throughout your career? Um, I think in the beginning we used to bring people in that didn't necessarily have the right skill set but with the right cultural fit and actually a lot of those staff are still with the business now like 10 years later um, so they've actually sort of they're the right people we get on well with them as friends I think there's pressure on you as the business grows and you need to recruit recruit quicker 
So you almost feel that you have to take people on that have got the right skills. Um, but again, you know, like I said, if they come from a big corporate, then maybe they're not the right people. But I think we're pretty good at what well, we were pretty good at grenades. You know, we used to have a lot of time with new starters where we used to give them a bit of background into the brand and they could have a Q&A with myself and Al. So they actually knew about us and where we were trying to go from and to. And I think that's really important because a lot of businesses, you assume that your staff know what the business wants to achieve. And actually, they don't. So it's just about engaging with the staff. So like weekly catch up calls and making everyone feel really valued and part of it. Yeah, so that's really important, is it then, in terms of that purpose and really being able to get people to understand what is it that you're trying to achieve and drive the business yeah. to. Back. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Steve, Steve, next question. Yeah, we've got a, a, a question from Ryan. He says, as a fellow Midlander, he's in Stourbridge, um, do you feel that your accent has ever held you back? Wow. Where are you from, Ryan? <laughs> from Yam Yam Lands, where you are, they um no, I mean not really. My dulcet Birmingham tones. Um no, I haven't really, to be honest with you. And I think that's because, you know, it's all very genuine. So no, no, I haven't. And I I'm not very good at putting on a posh voice. <laughs> I think and I again, think... you know, I think it's really important that you're sort of accessible. If people think that they, you know, you're like them and, you know, they can relate to you, that's really, really important. I think if you start a business and you're like that groomed businessman or that woman with like high heels on in a suit and whatever else, and, you know, you think you're above everyone else, that just never works. But I Ryan, said, I think... I said really Birmingham then as well. That's your thought, Ryan. <laughs> Julia, I, it's, I, I, know, I, I know Ryan, he's, he's, a, he's a Wolf supporter, so bless him, he's probably, I don't know, it comes from a, a bit sad at the moment. Yeah, bless yeah. him. But I used to live in Stourbridge, actually. <laughs> hey, Ryan, are you throwing anything at me right now, by the way? <laughs> anyway, um, cool. We digress. Thanks for that great question. <laughs> Julia, in terms of, let's, let's go back to very difficult times and, again, the roller coaster. Going back to when you were creating the business during the heart of recession, have you got any advice for things that you did from any routines, whether it be the morning, lunch, whatever you did that just helped you take a breath and just reset? Um, hindsight has taught me that things that I should have done, um, and I'll be honest with you, you know, when we started Grenade, it was 24 seven. So we didn't have a day off for four years. We didn't take a salary for, uh, you know, for four years, everything went into the business. And, you know, we really didn't have that work life balance. You know, we didn't have children. So we didn't have that sort of home um, life. It was all just work. I think upon reflection and realizing what people are going through at the moment, you know, we never came up with our best business ideas when we were sat in front of a computer and we were that involved with the day to day. So I think, you know, it sounds really cheesy, but one thing that I should have done was worked more on the business as opposed to in the business. So whereas I was checking every web banner, well, I, really was checking, I think, you know, because it's your business, you're so sort of surrounded by it. You don't you forget to see what other people are seeing from outside. So I was like checking every web banner that went out, every flyer that went out, every color on every piece of artwork. And then sometimes you don't get time to sit back and think, well, actually, you know, this is the sort of new product that we should be developing. Or, you know, let's look at a strategy for marketing in Germany, for example, because you're too busy checking web banners. And I think as you get better staff around you that can do the day to day, you never want to lose touch with it. But you do need that headspace to be a bit more strategic. Yeah, and do, do you, so is it a discipline, do you think? Is, does that require teaching yourself a new discipline to, to be able to distance yourself? Well, I think, think I, I don't necessarily think that's to do with discipline. I think that's to do with bringing the right people in to support you. And I think a lot of small businesses do run really, really lean. And you think you can do everything yourself. And yes, you can, but actually you should free yourself up to do the things that you're really good at doing. So we probably didn't bring in staff soon enough. Um, and actually, a good team around you can create lots of more opportunities and give you a lot more time to develop a lot more, you know, new products. Um, sorry, I forgot the question now. It's my age. Um, don't worry. No, it's just in terms of how you manage. To, it's, it's about discipline and being able to discipline, stop yourself. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. The deep and, and getting too much into stuff that actually is not going to make a massive impact. 
Yeah, I mean, with regard to discipline, I'm massively organised. So I think that's key. If you let everything sort of pile up, then that can make you feel sort of a bit under pressure. So I was always like dealing with everything. I have a routine every day. So for the last however many years, I'm up at five o'clock in the morning and, you know, I'm on the treadmill. And I do that even now. So it might be like sort of quarter to six now. Um, but every morning for probably the last 25 years, you know, I run for an hour in the mornings and that's my start to the day. And I think that's really important at times where you sort of lose the structure. So we're all working from home at the moment. And I think having that start to the day is really good. So even though I said earlier, you know, about sitting in your pajamas all day, if you want to, you don't want to be doing that all day. Um, and I saw a, um, an interview with some guys that were held captive um, and they were saying that actually the things that you should do is plan to get through every day as opposed to planning to what you're going to do when all this is over, because you need to set yourself short term goals that you can achieve. And then they also said have a shower every day. <laughs> so obviously, like have a shave or a shower or whatever to obviously look after yourself, that sort of self-respect. So I think that's really important as well, John. <laughs> <laughs> so let's put some context on that we had a little uh, we had a little chat first thing this morning very very early and uh yeah i was, looked a bit disheveled didn't i uh <laughs> i've been up showered on the running machine just saying <laughs> yeah now to start at five, right to start at five o'clock in the morning i mean when i hear that i feel mortified because i'm thinking don't you feel exhausted like getting up at five o'clock do you get to bed early or just five o'clock you like you're, you're awake. No, I mean, I am a morning person and I work much better. So, you know, I'm, I like clear my emails in the morning because then I think you've got like a clean sheet for the rest of the day. But it's whatever works for you. And again, you don't want to put pressure on yourself thinking that you should be doing something just because someone else is doing it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you can get up at midday and still get just as much work done if you're productive and you just crack on with it as opposed to getting distracted. So it's whatever works for you. You just need to take the pressure off yourself. Okay. Okay, so, so I don't need to set my alarm for five o'clock tomorrow, Julia. That's good. No. Uh, Steve, back to you, sir. Okay, so we got a, a question from Andrew. Uh, what is the first question that you like to ask SMEs um, who you now work with or act with as a non-exec director? Um, what do you, and then this is, this is more like a, an interview question, but it's basically, you know, what do you want to do with your business? Because I think it's, I think if you know what you want to achieve, that really does help you plan out. So, for example, if a, an SME said to me, well, you know, we want to sell in five years time, then I'll say that's fine. I know exactly what we should be doing in the next sort of two to three years to get you ready for sale. Um, if somebody says to me, do you know what, you know, I want to have a really nice lifestyle business. I want, you know, my kids to sort of grow and, and work with the business. Then that's brilliant because, again, there are things that you can do to help you achieve that. Um, so it's definitely, you know, what do you want to get out of this business? What are your expectations? Do you think because you are an entrepreneur? Yeah. As an investor, it's a totally different mindset, i.e. you're patient with the money because you're just saying then, I'm, oh, listen, you know, if you want to go five years, 10 years, 15 years, that's up to you. Is it because of that, that, that patience, of, you know, wanting people to I, feel that? They're... No, I think it's, you know, I would, I don't think businesses should take investment if they if they don't need to. Um, because I think, you know, money is cheap. I think having equity and ownership and being able to make the decisions is worth a lot. Um, I think you should only take investment if you need it. And I think for me, it's more of the time and the information that I invest in businesses. And, you know, just talking from Grenade, we knew we would have a big business, but we didn't really know what we were going to have. Um, so we traded off grenadefatburner.co.uk as our domain name. And then, of course, we realised that once we got more than one product, that fatburner.com or .co.uk was actually a bit irrelevant. So we ended up buying grenade.com for like 50,000 bucks or something. And that was a huge investment for us. And again, if we'd have sat down at the beginning and said, well, what do we want to achieve with this business? You know, we want to sell internationally. We want to have a range of products. That sort of thing we might have been able to address early days. And also, yeah. it's really interesting when you work with founders that are like husband and wife or like partners, you know, like business partners, you need to make sure that their thoughts about the business are aligned as well. Because if one of them wants to sell in two years and go and retire on a beach and the other one wants to be in it for the long run, then there's a bit of a conflict of interest there. Yeah. How did you, in terms of with, 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 with Al, how did you 
resolve gridlock, deadlock when we just used to fight. We just used to fight. Actually, I probably went silent and like banged a few doors and then he stormed off. And then it was like after a couple of days, it was like you forgot about it, it was like just whatever. No, but like we always we never argued about the business. So we used to have like differences opinion about, you know, some stuff, but with the sort of in you know, with the sort of real important decisions in the business, we were completely aligned. So we knew what we wanted to do with it investment wise. We knew what we wanted to do with it product wise. We knew where we wanted to sell. And we were completely aligned about that because we discussed it all. And again, that very honest relationship, there were no sort of secrets. And, you know, we knew that Grenade was something really special and, and where it could go. Steve, back to you. What did you learn from your biggest, biggest leadership challenges? Cool. Um, I think one of the not one of the challenges as an entrepreneur is that you have to learn to say no. And like we always said yes to stuff at Grenade. It was like, you know, from our first body power like 10 years ago, we got the interest from the health and uh, health and wellness buyer from GNC in the US. He was like, you know, I saw your product. It was great. You know, we want to stock you. We were like, yay, let's do it. We had no team in the US, no marketing in the US. We had no product for the US. We didn't know anything about FDA regulation. So we made it happen. But actually, it was more the excitement about selling in the US as opposed to the actual sort of practicalities. So we got products on shelf in the US, just like we said we would within about four months, but it didn't sell. So we ended up buying a lot of it back because they obviously do sale a return in, in GNC in the US, and that actually could have finished the business. So I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges is think about stuff, be quite strategic, have a sort of roadmap of where you want the business to go, what the lower hanging fruit is, you know, where the easy wins are, and then the sort of bigger pictures, and just work towards those. And of course, if any sort of opportunities come up, you need to think about, well, that's great, but have I got the resources to do it? Financially, can I do it? Is it going to affect my UK business? It's just about measuring up the sort of gain from, you know, all the sort of issues to get to get you there. The business went into the SME export track, didn't it, in 2017? So yeah. are you, in terms of when you're looking back and all of a sudden now all these countries that your brand was in, mm. did you feel definitely the right decision to, to, to really go international? Yeah, I mean, I don't regret anything that we did at Grenade. Everything we did, even though it probably wasn't in the right order, it worked and that's because we made it work so again you know we didn't want to say no to anything so when we got interest from south africa we made it happen when we got interest from russia we made it happen we were shipping in by i don't know god knows where you know but we just we were entrepreneurial we were reactive you know we didn't have a board at that point so we could you know make things happen um we probably didn't recruit recruit quick enough so we should have put good people in to manage that growth. And actually, I think what we did really well was sell globally quickly, but we didn't necessarily make the most of those opportunities. So we almost had placeholders as opposed to building sort of the team on the ground, the distribution to really maximize it. And that's really what we've been doing over the last few years. And that's why sales have rocketed. Steve, you said you've got some questions that are racking up. Next one. Yeah, yeah. So we've got a question from Harriet. How often do you reassess things? Uh, and change your plans during this time? Uh, daily. Daily. I mean, I'm always thinking about the decisions that we've made, refining verbiage, refining text, you know, moving spend on digital campaigns daily. I mean, I think your overall goal should be the same, but how you get there is going to differ. And I think that that's what makes entrepreneurial businesses so special is you can have like a, a goal of where you want to be. But the journey to get there is actually the interesting bit, um, whereas the corporates are a bit more mapped. And, you know, this is what we're going to do when and, you know, this is the forecast and we'll hit it. I think as an entrepreneurial business, you think, right, I want to get there. How I'm going to get there? I've got no idea. And that's the fun bit. Do you think do you think as a result of that, when, you know, the business gets more successful and more corporatized that a lot of the fun goes or do you just adapt and get used to other forms of fun yeah uh, 
I mean, yes, because I mean, for me, I'm a real brand person. So I love the brands and the stuff that we did sort of with the um, experiential marketing to start off with at Grenade was just phenomenal. You know, I remember driving the tank into the NEC. No one had ever done it before. You know, it's fueled on cooking oil. This smoke coming out the back. It was just horrendous. You know, we got the armed police in the back of a van coming back from the health and fitness show in Germany. We had like loads of World War Two like uh, shells in the back. And, you know, this police guy was speaking French, had a machine gun and he was quite big. So I was trying to fly in fat burners and it's just like that's just really not appropriate and like those are the stories that are really really important to you but I think you can still have fun in a business I just think maybe it has to be a bit more not corporate but you just have to think about the ROI a little bit more and again of course when we were starting out we didn't care we just did it because we wanted to do it yeah I love that we just wanted to do it <laughs> yeah. and actually with Alice the CEO of Grenade now still it's done really well to keep its sort of sense of humor and personality and the fact that we're a bit sort of wacky because that's him so the founder sort of personality does come through and that's really important Steve okay we've got a question from Sandra uh, did you find the use of a military image alienated some potential customer segments interesting um, no, I can I can see why you know you might think that, but we never we did have a big military following, but we were never a military brand. So the product was called Grenade, so obviously it did lend itself to that. And even though you, we use like tanks and you know we had like camo um, on you know camo netting and stuff, we were never like a cheap military brand. There were quite a lot of brands at that time that used to do like fake camo, and it all looked a bit cheap and cheesy. We used the sort of verbiage, but we never pigeonholed ourselves as a military brand. So we did have a lot of military users, but, you know, the weight loss product in the bars, you know, because they were the best in the category. Then we also had, you know, serious fit, fitness athletes, you know, people that wanted to lose weight that used the product. So we were always very careful not to pigeonhole ourselves as a military brand. And again, I think that's really important. So, you know, when you're growing a business, you want to know who your core consumer is. But to have a business that's mass market where you can sell anywhere, you have to draw in new consumers as well. So, for example, one of the brands that I work for, they have a vegan chocolate product, which is great. Um, when I first started, there must have been about six, seven call outs on the pack. You know, great tasting, um, uh, healthy, which it wasn't because it had sugar in it. No GMO, you know, no palm oil. But the one thing that they were missing was vegan. So like the most obvious points they hadn't got on their packaging. And I think, right. you know, if you want to be a bit more vegan, then that's the brand that you should go for. So it's all about, you know, your core message and what's important to you, but making sure that it's relatable to a lot more people than just one particular population. So sometimes then people do forget to say the absolute nugget, you know, the cherry, the most obvious thing. Yeah, definitely. But also, you know, so a lot of brands have done really well at being very niche. So let's think about, I don't know, cycling. You can sell bikes for two, three thousand pounds to hardcore cyclists. You know, if you want a bike that can be bought by millions of people, then it isn't going to be a two, three grand bike. So that's where sort of setting out what you want to achieve with your business is really important. If you want to be a niche food business, that's great, but you're probably not going to grow as quickly as a food business that's more appealing to more people. Well, what Sandra has responded, she did say uh, that she struggles to, um, she she's finding the use of tanks and weaponry really um, hard to stomach, and, but she does say, go on to say that she, maybe she does, she's not your target customer, um, which is probably where, she's, where her point is. Um, no, I appreciate that. And sorry, Steve, just on that note, you know, the one thing that we set out of Grenade is we never wanted to offend anybody, but we also wanted to be a brand that people recognised. We never wanted to be a vanilla brand that people didn't have an opinion about. So most people love the brands, but we know that some people didn't like the brands. And, you know, that was fine with us because at least people had noticed it. So I think that's that's quite important. You know, your brand needs to be distinctive so that people remember it. If they buy it, that's a bonus. If they don't, at least they've sort of recognised the brands. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Um, which brings us back to Grenade. There's a question here about um, how did you take the decision to let go of Grenade? Was it premeditated or was it opportunistic? Um, I mean, I've still got a huge amount of equity in the business. Um, we went through two rounds of PE. So as you go through PE, you obviously lose a little bit of control and the financials and, you know, the spreadsheets become more important. I'm, like I said earlier, a very sort of brand person. You know, I built this with Al from a sort of desk in a bedroom to where it was sort of 18 months ago. Um, and to be honest with you, 
you know, when you become that sort of size business, it becomes more about the numbers and the margins. And, you know, can you afford to put it on shelf in this retailer because the margins 1p less, et cetera, than the brand. So for me, it was actually the right time to step away because I felt that I'd taken the brand as far as I could go. Um, because that's what makes it sexy to me, not the spreadsheets. Cool. Steve, are we going to do one more question? What are you most excited about for the future? That's from, that's from our friend Jay Richards. Oh, God, I've got a holiday booked on the 4th of September and I'm just desperate to go. So that's what I'm most, no. Um, what am I most excited about? Um, I'm really enjoying working with the businesses that I'm working with because they're at that sort of really exciting time in the business. So it's that real growth stage. So it's about like, building the brand and, and seeing where they go. But I'm, I'll go again. So I've got a few ideas. Um, just waiting for the right sort of, well, the right product, first of all, which sort of just started to work on. Um, I can't say the right time because obviously what we talked about, there never is a right time, but maybe the right time for me. Um, so I had a great year last year, did a lot of traveling and saw some of the places in the world that I hadn't seen. So I'm ready to go again now. So that's what most excites me. And Julia, and thanks, Jay, for that. Oh, awesome. and that's the hairdressers as well. I'm really excited about that. Tell me, I, I can't, I can't wait. I'm, I'm literally so excited. It's going to be the highlight of the year. Um, that was a really cool question from Jay. And I think what I would like to finish on is you're talking about doing it again. Mm. is the thing that you will do completely differently this time and I don't mean about the products or anything like that I mean in terms of how you run and create a business um I would probably run set it up for sale within three years really yeah um just because I don't know whether you know I'm old now so I know that things have a shelf life so I'd probably set it up. I wouldn't necessarily get investments. Well, I definitely wouldn't get investments. So I'd look to sell straight away as opposed to staying in um, yeah. because I think that that's really tough for an entrepreneur. Unless you get the right partner, it's really, really difficult. We did have great partners. Um, what else would I do differently? I'd probably be more B2C um, as opposed to, you know, working with distributors because even though they're great and they help get your product out there, you do lose that connection with the end consumer. So I'd like to be able to sort of market direct to them and have that relationship with them as opposed to via a third party. Cool. Brilliant. Julia, I am looking at the, the timer and we've got one minute left. So before I talk about what's to come, I just want to say a huge thank you to you. It really has been so cool. To, to really tap into your thoughts and and you know it sounds like there's a lot of exciting stuff to come as well but thank you so much for supporting us you've, you've done a lot of uh, events for us and a great member of this community so thank you so much what you've said today has been epic and you know for myself and everybody listening it's been it's been great so enormous thanks Juliet it's been great thanks John thanks thanks a million to Juliet Barrett such a real authentic leader and I'm sure you'll all agree it's so clear how such a dynamic form of leadership can create such awesome fast growth businesses just like Grenade. Now, please do leave a review on Apple Podcast. It'd be great to get your thoughts, any feedback at all, because our aim is to create brilliant content through the podcast that we create. So thanks so much again. I look forward to seeing you guys again at our next podcast. <laughs>